This message was given at Campus Fellowship's 2021 Fall Conference. The theme of this conference was the five solas. Omaha's CF Director Matt O'Malley shares on faith alone. We hope you find this encouraging. Um, Thank you, Eric, for your message last night. And there actually will be quite a bit of overlap between all of our subjects. Because really, the Reformation is about coming to the biblical gospel. And so when we're all hovering around the gospel, there's going to be some overlap. So for me to be able to delineate and also to overlap what Eric spoke about, I'll say this, that faith is the vehicle and Jesus is the destination of where we're going. In Luther's famous line, he wrote that the doctrine of justification by faith alone is the article upon which the church stands or falls. And in the 16th century, there was a lot of fuss going on uh, over a lot of things. There's uh, the Protestant Reformation and started in 1517 and there were concerns within the Catholic Church and outside in the culture about things like indulgences, papal infallibility, the veneration of Mary. But the the reformers like Martin Luther and Zwingli and uh, Calvin took major issue with one very important doctrine and that is the doctrine of justification. So what exactly is justification? And why did Luther and the Reformers take such a strong stand in opposition with the Catholic Church on justification? So justification is how sinful man can become righteous and therefore put back into right standing with God. That is a very short definition. Justification, it's it's a legal term to absolve somebody's legal charges that stands against them. Now, how did the reformers believe that a fallen man could be put back into relationship with holy God? And this this is very, very important. Instead of relying on the tradition of the church, the reformers chose to echo the words of holy scripture. You can hear me, right? They still chose to echo the words of the Bible that man is made righteous and justified, not by his works, but by faith alone. There was a discovery, it's not an invention of any new doctrine during the Reformation, it was a rediscovery of the biblical gospel. Dr. Stephen Lawson writes, when we say reformed, we simply mean biblical, meaning we have come back to the Bible. We allow the Bible to frame our doctrine Reformed truth is the purity of the gospel. How sinful man can be made right with holy God. It is the restoration of the purity of worship that hinges on both spirit and truth. And my hope for you guys this morning would be that you would rediscover a saving faith that comes not by works, but by faith alone. So I know in your journals you'll have the passage right there. You can flip open to it if you have your Bible or your phone if you'd like to open up. We're going to be in Galatians chapter 3. We'll be in 10 through 14. And this is a very, uh, it's a nuanced passage. And I would like for you guys to take a minute and on your own read through it yourself so that you can become familiar and so that when we get to these verses it won't be, you won't be taken by surprise. So let's take a minute. And we'll read through the passage on your own. I don't know if that's intentional, but it's actually really good timing. 
It's sort of like in the Jeopardy song. So let's begin. I have five points for you this morning. The first point is called the curse. So let's start. We're going to be in verse 10. And it says, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. And we're going to see this often. Paul is quoting from the Old Testament a lot in these four verses, as if to root his argument that it is by faith alone into the Old Testament scriptures from the, the prophets. And so here he is, he's in Deuteronomy in verse 26, and it says, Cursed is anyone who does not uphold the words of the law by carrying them out. So before we can move on to like the weighty matters of justification and faith, we need to kind of define some terms. And these terms are the law and the curse. Now, I don't know about you guys, but when I think of curse, I think of like baseball. <laughs> I think of like Hocus Pocus. Does anyone know that movie? Hocus Pocus, that's what's up. So um, who's going to be watching that movie with me this fall? Where are my fall people at? Where are my fall folk at? My pumpkin people. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. I just love the fall. So what is the curse? What is the law? What is the cause of the curse? And what is the result of the curse? These are our sub-points for point number one. So number one, what is the curse? Unfortunately, um, there really is no clear definition from either the Old or the New Testament for the word curse. We, it's, it's a bit of a transliteration. So we have to do a little bit of a forensic work to really understand what is meant by the curse. In the New Testament, Paul uses the Greek word for curse in his katara. In the Old Testament Hebrew, the word for curse is arar. Now, a resource that I found says that the Hebrew verb to curse, which is arar, is preserved very nicely in the Hebrew verb ara, which means to gather. So basically, it's not a coincidence that they're very closely spelled because they're very closely related. And from doing it, just a little bit more digging, there's another verb that occurs uh, often juxtaposed to the Old Testament word for arar, and that is barak, and that is to bless. So often when you see barak, you'll see uh, arar. When you see arar, you'll see barak. So what do we got here? The conclusion is that to be cursed, it's, um, it's, it's not a good thing. To be cursed might as well mean the opposite of being gathered. That is, to be, to be pushed away and shunned from God. And it might well mean the opposite of being blessed. So instead of being favored, and instead of being promoted by God, the opposite is true. So to be cursed is in direct opposition to God. It's not a slap on the wrist. It's a very serious thing. Number two, what is the law? The law, or as Paul would refer to it often as the works of the law, are generally referring to the Mosaic law found in the first five books of the Old Testament. Uh, the examples of those would be keeping the Sabbath, um, ceremonial washings and clean foods and what have you. And although Moses gets a lot of the credit for having brought the law to the Israelites, we see that uh, the Hebrew word for law Namos, N-O-M-O-S, actually appears a lot longer, way before Moses, in Genesis 26, verse 4. I will multiply your offspring as the stars in heaven, and will give you your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham, he obeyed my voice and kept my charge. 
my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. And I don't mean... The laws are really just a long list of do's and don'ts, right? Like if you boil it down, that's really what the law means. Um, but really, the law is just a manifestation of God's will. Really, it, it, to, to say it simply, they're really just God's preferences. And I don't want to say it too casual, but really, it is God's preferences. So if God's nature we know is good, then what God says is good, and therefore his law is good. What can we say about the law? The law is good. In Psalm 19, 7 through 11, and I bet you you can guess what David has to say about God's law. The law of the Lord, it is perfect. Refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord, they are trustworthy. The precepts of the Lord, they are right. The commands of the Lord, they're radiant. They give light to the eyes of man. And the Old Testament is just filled with men just, just gushing about God's law. They just love it. They can't get enough of it. And I actually think if I can remember right, somebody very important said to his disciples, do not think that I've come to abolish the law, the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So if God created the law, then it must inherently be good. Number three, what is the cause of the curse? In other words, is is the law the cause of the curse? And as I mentioned, we see that God referred to the law back in Genesis 26, long before Moses. And no surprise, you see that the curse also occurs long before Moses. It started with our first parents. You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was the first law back in Genesis 2. Now, I know somebody might say... Uh, well, what about the, the command to be fruitful and multiply? Well, this was the first command God gave with a consequence. And in the very next chapter, Genesis 3, God says, because you ate from the tree, because you didn't listen to me, the ground is cursed because of you. And therefore, you will eat food from the ground through painful toil. And in the next chapter, Genesis 4, God curses Abel and said, because you spilled your brother's blood, you are now cursed. Now, Paul kind of glues this together. He, he helps us make sense of all this in Romans 7. What shall we say then? Is the law, is it sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was if it had not had been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. And in Romans 3, Paul says again, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. And I wish we had a lot more time to go into like the function of the law, what it's really for, but this is a very high level. And we know this to be true, right? The curse doesn't originate from the law. The curse originates from our nature, from our wiring. The way that we are wired is, is, is dysfunctional, our own wiring. Number four, what is the result of the curse? So as a human race, we have a predisposed condition, and we are incapable of overcoming it. And in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul gives a damning condemnation of all humanity. There's really no hope in this passage, not yet. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions 
and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air and the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time and gratified the cravings of the flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by our own nature deserving of wrath. We are by nature deserving of wrath. In James 2, he says, For anyone who keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. <laughs> Sheesh, talk about a curse. Because of our sinful nature from birth, we are incapable of living according to the law. I want to say that again. Because of our nature, we are incapable of living according to God's law. The best comparison is to forms of addiction. If someone is addicted to alcohol, they cannot will themselves out of addiction. They can't lift themselves out of alcoholism. There's, there's an acknowledgement of a profound dysfunction that needs to be addressed by a higher power. Or to say it another way, we are not cursed because we failed to live out the law. We failed to live out the law because we are cursed. That was point number one. Let's do point number two. Our justification. Verse 11, uh, Galatians 3. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because, well, the righteous will live by faith. Paul is again quoting from the Old Testament. He's in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. But for the context, we're going to read verses 3 and 4. Habakkuk says, For this revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, just, just wait for it. It will certainly come and it will not delay, verse 4. See, the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright. But the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. Or as Paul says, the righteous will then live by faith. The context is that Israel is under attack. Go figure. They always seem to be under attack. And they're waiting for a revelation to figure out what they're going to do and how they're going to uh, get out of the mess. And Habakkuk says, just wait for it. God will bring a revelation that will deliver you and save you. The salvation is by faith for the Israelites. And it has always been salvation by faith for the Israelites. Now, it should be said that um, on the heels of the Reformation, it's not like the Catholic Church just rolled over and played dead at the feet of Martin Luther, right? Rome had a response. And this response came in the form of, of an ecumenical council, which means the Pope, the Cardinals, the Bishops all got together in Trento, Italy in 1545. And the main objective of this council was to combat and confront this rising reformation, this push against the Catholic Church. And we know this council today is the Council of Trent. Um, now, before we get into this council, we do need to um, correct a misunderstanding. Okay, so for us to believe that Catholics believe in justification by works, and that we Protestants believe in justification that is by faith, is wrong. That, that, that is false, that is just not true. Uh, no serious Protestant believes that, and really no Catholics believe that at all. As a matter of fact, the Council of Trent actually nods alongside the Reformers and agrees that, there, that salvation cannot be by, by works alone. Here's an excerpt 
from the Council of Trent. If anyone saith that man may be justified before God by his own works, whether done through the teaching of human nature or that of the will, without the grace of God through Jesus Christ, let him be anathema. Let him be anathema. So what does that word mean? Let him be anathema. Well, in response to the Reformation, Trent issued a very, very long list uh, of canons and, and anathemas. Uh, and then anathema just really means a formal curse. So we know God is cursing people all the time, it seems, in the, in the Old Testament. And the Catholic Church is declaring a curse on anybody, in this case, who believes that faith and salvation is by works alone. Okay? And anathema is really just a dogmatic declaration to say, this statement is false and this statement is true. So let us be clear about exactly what the Catholic Church believes. They believe that the justification for our sins is conceived by a combination of both works and faith. That salvation is earned by both uh, merit and believing in Jesus. And it is dispensed by the sacraments, specifically through baptism. That God dispenses that, that salvation when you're put under water as a baby. So where does the doctrine of faith alone from the Protestant perspective fit in here? I want to shoot you straight. Rome has continued to use very firm language against faith alone starting in the Reformation at the Council of Trent and still today. Again, I'll be reading from the, from the Council of Trent, and you kind of have to put on your 16th century, uh, I don't know what they would wear back then, assuming they had glasses. You'll need those. It says, If anyone saith that, faith alone, it, it, that by faith alone the impious is justified in such wise as to mean that nothing else is required to cooperate with in order to the obtaining of grace and justification, and that is not in any way necessary that he be prepared to dispose by the movement of his own will. Let him be anathema. <laughs> okay, what does that say? Basically, if you believe that it is by faith alone and that nothing else is required to cooperate with that, that's not the gospel. They would curse that. That's anathema. They say again, another passage from the, the council is, if anyone saith, and this is, you really got to pay attention with this one, okay? He says, if anyone saith that man is truly absolved from his sins and justified because he assuredly believes himself absolved and justified, or that no one is truly justified but he who believes himself justified, and that by his faith alone absolution and justification are effected, let he be anathema. The declarations from Trent have never been recanted. They can't be, because the Pope edicts these doctrines, and the Pope is infallible. Rome's teaching on faith is that faith is a necessary condition for justification, but it is not a sufficient condition for justification. Let me say that again. They believe that faith is a necessary condition for justification, but that it is not a sufficient condition. In other words, oxygen is needed to make a fire. Oxygen is necessary, but it is not a sufficient ingredient for fire. That there must be some other works to accompany your faith in order to be justified, in order to be in that watershed made right, finally over the hump and made right with God. 
Now, the reformers, they took a very strong position in the inerrancy of Scripture. And they were coming back to the Bible. They, they took the position and reaffirmed this biblical message that faith is indeed sufficient. That they're, they're pointing to the Bible saying, look, the Bible says it is by faith alone. And therefore, the moment you have a saving faith, you are credited, you are credited, baby, with salvation. The moment you have a saving faith, you are justified before God. And this is by faith alone. Because God loves faith. He loves it. He invented it, you know. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. In Genesis 15, 6, he states that Abraham believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. It was credited. God gave him this righteousness. And we would call that justification in our Protestant um, worldview, in our doctrine, that it is an imputed righteousness. An imputed righteousness. The imputed righteousness is really a concept of Christian Theology proposing that the righteousness given to a believer is imposed into them as if it were really theirs. God credits and, sh and just gives us this righteousness that we never earned at all. Erwin Lutzer, he's uh, the president of a seminary in Chicago called the Moody Bible Institute. He shares this this illustration, and I put a little uh, caveat, a little warning here for you guys. Uh, I'm going to be using a Brooklyn accent for dramatic effect, so be ready. <laughs> that when you preach the gospel, salvation by faith alone, when you preach the gospel, people might tell you, well, you'll know what that means. If it's a gift from God, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go out, I'm going to get saved, and then I'm going to murder somebody. If anybody ever says that, first of all, you should run. <laughs> but if anybody ever says that to you, rejoice. Rejoice in your heart. Because Paul says that's exactly what the people of the world will say when the gospel is preached correctly. Paul knows that those who hear the gospel without eyes to see and ears to hear, they're going to say, uh, well, shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? <laughs> so stupid. You know, when somebody says that, their cogs are starting to turn. When they say that, they're starting to get the biblical gospel. But Paul has an objection. He says, when somebody says, oh, should we sin more so that grace may abound? Paul's like, absolutely not, by no means. That is not right. That is, you're swinging way too far in the other direction. The gospel really is this simple. It really is by faith alone. And there really is only one way to accept it. Next point, number three. The law is not based on faith. Verse 12, Galatians 3. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. Now, if we compare these two paths, uh, one being the law and one being uh, faith, Paul wants to make a distinction in verse 12 that these ain't the same thing. And he's quoting here from uh, Leviticus 
in uh, Leviticus, uh, it says here in verse 5, Keep my decrees and laws, for the person who obeys them will live by them. I am the Lord. Paul's using Leviticus 18 here. And several commentaries that I've read um, give credit Paul the motivation for using Leviticus as a way to um, counter uh, bad theology in the church in Galatia. They were wondering, ah, yes, Paul, we concur that, yeah, faith is very necessary for salvation, but don't we also need good works? Well, there's just one problem with that. And he, Paul is referencing Leviticus 18, and he's saying the two are not compatible. You can't have both. He's quoting Leviticus 18 as if to say, okay, fine, 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 fine. You guys want to use the law? You guys want to be circumcised again? You want to be under the law of the Judaizers? Go ahead. But if you want to live by the law, then guess what? You gotta do it. Not just to try and do it, not to intend to do it, not just to really want to do it really, really bad, but there's no curve God grades on if you're going to be justified by your righteousness. The law is a taskmaster with a posture of leaning over onto you with all of its weight. And no one is justified unless you fully obey the law. Warren Wearsby, he writes, The law says, do and live, but grace says, believe and live. This morning, if you're here and you're being honest with yourself, and you can see that in your life you've been trying to earn salvation with a combination of, of faith and good works, Paul has a few words for you and for the church in Galatia. He says, do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourself be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you. Again, I declare to every man let himself be, that lets himself be circumcised that he is now obligated to obey the whole law. You are trying to be justified by the law, and you have fallen away from grace. In Galatians, he says again, chapter 1, Even if we or any angel should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Let him be anathema. Let him be cursed. James Montgomery Boyce says that faith excludes the law and by its own very nature, um, let me read that again. Faith excludes the law and law by its very nature excludes faith. They are not compatible. If someone is preaching to you a, a justification, a gospel, that is a combination of both works and faith, merit and belief, that is not the gospel. Let's be really clear this morning. That is not the gospel. Faith and the law are not two sides of the same coin. They are fundamentally two different things with two very different outcomes. Number four, our scapegoat. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. 
And here goes Paul again, quoting from the Old Testament. This time he's in Deuteronomy 21, 23. But for some context, we'll read both uh, 22 and 23. In Deuteronomy it says, If someone is guilty of a capital offense and is put to death and their body is exposed on a pole, you must not leave the body hanging on a pole overnight. Be sure to bury it the same day. Because anyone who is hung on a pole is under God's curse. Okay, so God, we know this to be true of God's nature. God is just. No Christian denomination would argue with that. God is just. And he just can't forgive sins. He can't sweep them under the rug. Something has to be punished. In Leviticus, um, Aaron is uh, initiating the um, act of uh, using a scapegoat for the forgiveness of sins. We're in Leviticus 16. It says, Then Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of a live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat and sending it away into the wilderness. By means of someone designated for the task, the goat shall bear on itself all the iniquities of that barren region, and the goat shall be set free in the wilderness. You know, recently I've been doing a, a pretty low and slow word study of the names of God in the, uh, in the Old Testament. And uh, it's an awesome study. I would really encourage you guys to, to do that sometime. And the names that God uses for himself are as follows. Jehovah Nisi means the Lord our banner. Jehovah Rapha means the Lord who heals. Jehovah Shalom means God our peace. Jehovah Ra'ah, the Lord our shepherd. Jehovah Jireh, God will provide. Jehovah Makadishka, the Lord who sanctifies. But there is one name for God that is superior to any one of these names. And that name is Jesus Christ. That name is Jesus Christ. Jesus himself was our scapegoat. On Jesus was placed the burden of the curse that he took upon himself when he was hung on a pole. Isaiah prophesied long ago saying that it was God's will to crush him to crush his son. Jesus was born to die. For I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, we need a savior, not just a good teacher. We need a savior who's going to reach into our dysfunction and pull us out of it. This was accomplished, and Eric mentioned this yesterday, this was accomplished by what we know as the great exchange. His righteousness for our sin. John Newton, he was a notoriously vicious, vicious slave trader. He turned abolitionist and wrote the amazing hymn, Amazing Grace. In his autobiography, he writes, and I just love this, he writes, although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clear, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great savior. I am such a wretch, but God is such a great 
Redeemer. Last point, number five. We're almost done. Our fides viva. Our fides viva. Last verse. So we're in Galatians 3. We're in verse 14. He redeemed us in order that the blessing that uh, given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promised Holy Spirit. If God's Spirit now lives in you, then Jesus said, it is finished. God has indeed removed the curse. God is holy, it says in Habakkuk, that you are too pure to even look on iniquity. And yet, if God's Spirit lives in you, then the curse must be removed. God's law, it is perfect, but it stood over us, demanding perfection. And in our decaying state, we fail to live according to it. But because of Jesus' sinless life and his atoning death, he redeemed us from our mess by rising from the dead. And he then imputed his righteousness into anybody who has faith and who would be willing to believe that his death was good enough. And for those who have faith, Martin Luther famously declared that faith is by faith, that justification is by faith alone, or our, our sola fide, but not by a faith that is alone. I'll say that again. Justification is by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. Faith must be alive. And the reformers called this kind of faith our fides viva, a living faith. My hope for you guys this morning is that you would rediscover a saving faith. That is by faith alone. And that because of a salvation that is, that is sola fide, that you would then start to live a life that is fides viva. Thanks, guys. If you found this encouraging, we hope you'll subscribe or follow for more content. Or go to our website, campusfellowship.com, for other resources. Campus Fellowship is a student organization whose goal is to come alongside local churches to reach college campuses. Thanks for listening.